Welcome to this week's message from Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. I'm going to do two more messages, including today. So today, and then of course next week is, is Ron Pierce, and then the week after that, I'm going to finish up this series on beginnings, uh, and then we'll do something over Christmas, and then uh, in the new year, I, I want to do the book of Revelation. But, uh, um, but today is the second last one, beginnings part seven. And, uh, and I want to talk about one of the most common objections. I want to deal with uh, one of the most common objections that our culture has towards the book of Genesis in particular, uh, but also the Bible in general. And uh, any of you who's ever been at university, you will no doubt have encountered this, uh, this objection for sure. Um, but even those of you who have adult children who are away from the Lord, uh, many of those adult children, if you would... Uh, probe deeply, this objection would probably surface in many cases. It's just sort of something that's out there, even for many non-Christians who don't know why they think it. And the, the objection I want to deal with today is, is this objection in our culture that people believe specifically about Genesis, but then they apply it to the rest of the Bible, is they think of Genesis as just another myth. It's just another myth. There's other you know, ancient myths out there, and, and Genesis, the creation story, is just another one of those myths. And in fact, all of the Bible and Christianity is a myth. Now, there are many, you know, this objection kind of comes from many different angles, and there's many different reasons for it, and I don't want to oversimplify it at all. But I want to talk about one kind of, uh, you know, one reason for this objection, and one place, one root, where this sort of objection has grown up out of. And uh, just to give you a little history, back in the mid-1800s, archaeologists were digging around the ancient city of Nineveh, and they hit the archaeological jackpot, one of the biggest archaeological uh, finds of all time. They stumbled on a cache of literally uh, hundreds and hundreds, I think into the thousands, of, of ancient clay tablets. Okay, not, I mean, not all complete tablets. Some of them are pieces and stuff like that. But it was this huge treasure trove. And these tablets were like, it was like getting into a time capsule and going back in time three or 4,000 years and seeing how people thought, how they viewed the world, their life, what it was like. And so it was this massive, like I said, it was like an archaeological jackpot. But one of the, one of the biggest surprises and the biggest finds in this huge cache of clay tablets was they found this Babylonian creation epic or this Babylonian creation uh, story uh, called Enuma Elish. And I'm not quite actually sure how to pronounce it, but anyway, I'm going to call it Enuma Elish in this, uh, in this message. But anyway, they found Enuma Elish. And one of the things that was so shocking, it was like a bombshell. Finding this Babylonian creation account was like a bombshell for both for secular historians and archaeologists, but also for many Christians. Because one of the the shocking things they found in Enuma Elish was that there was many similarities, okay? There was many very clear differences. We're going to get to those as well in this message. But there was many clear similarities between the Babylonian creation story and the Genesis creation story, okay? Which was a huge shock. You have to understand that up until the mid-1800s, uh, even non-believers, pretty much just everybody in general, whether you were a believer or non-believer, everybody thought of Genesis as, as this really unique uh, piece of ancient writing. They thought of it as really unique. There's nothing else like it. Even if they didn't believe in it, they thought it was unique. But since the mid-1800s, when they found this Babylonian creation story, and there's a number of parallels with, with the biblical story, and since then they found even more creation stories from ancient times, around the same time as, as Genesis was written, uh, Egyptian ones, Mesopotamian, all kinds of different ones, with all kinds of similarities with the Genesis account. And out of that, it was a very quick step for a lot of secular historians who wanted to believe this anyway, and archaeologists, it was a very quick step to say, ha, look at this. Uh, Genesis is just another myth. It's just like all these other myths. In fact, uh, you know, then there's all kind of papers being written in books about, you know, Genesis is borrowing this and this and this from the Babylonian one, maybe, or this and this and this from the Egyptian one. And these are all, you know, Genesis is not unique. It's just another myth. It's borrowing from some of these other myths. And so I want to look at that. And again, uh, you know, Christians can 
do a number of different things with, uh, you know, with, with this reality. We can bury our heads in the sand and pretend it's not there. Uh, we can just not know about it. I'll never forget when I went to university, I had, I had never actually heard of this. And then I was in university. It's not just the creation stories, it's also the flood story, which I'm going to talk about the, the flood story uh, next week a little bit. Uh, or two weeks, sorry. Next week is Ron Pierce, not to confuse you. But, um, but, uh, but, there's, but when I first heard, look at what, there's other flood stories? And there's other creation stories? And there's similarities between the stories it actually, when I first got to university, the first thing was a little bit of a shock. It was like, oh, I didn't know about this before. And, uh, of course, I did a lot of thinking and, and, and reading, and I was very strong in my faith and had, for many reasons, very convinced, and we'll look at some of those uh, today as well, of the truth of the Bible and Christianity. So it didn't shake me to my core, but it certainly surprised me. And for a lot of Christians, it's very shocking when they go out there and they find this out. And, uh, and when people are telling them, see, how can you believe in the Bible? It's just another one of these myths. It's borrowing things from these other myths. Well, we're going to look at some of the answers to that. But first, I just want to show you some of the similarities. You just have to see some of these for yourself. And we go through uh, lots, and I don't have hours and hours to talk, uh, unfortunately for me, fortunately for you. But, uh, but we'll, look at a, we'll look at a couple things right here. And we'll just start, uh, you know, there's actually more similarities with the Egyptian ones, but I'm going to look at a, a couple of parallels with the Babylonian ones. And then we're going to look at why those are there. And, uh, but we'll start right at the very beginning of Genesis, and we'll care, compare the first words and the first lines of the Genesis creation account with the first lines and the first words of the Babylonian creation account. And so we go to Genesis 1, 1 to 2. And by the way, as we do this, you're going to learn a lot more about Genesis. By the end of this message, you're going to have a whole different picture of what Genesis 1 looked like to the early Hebrew. Uh, not many of them were readers, but listeners. Genesis 1, 1 to 2 starts this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So the first thing I want you to see here in the Genesis account, we don't often think about this, is before God creates the earth, okay, before he creates really the universe, the, the sun and the stars and the moon, all that sort of stuff, the Hebrew picture of what there was in the universe was this, I was going to, you know, it's hard to even describe because it's formless. I want you to see there's form, without form and void, it's not a sphere of water. It's not a cube of water. It's just this sort of big abyss of deep water. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That's the Genesis picture of what things were like before God started to make all the stuff, the earth, the planets, and all that sort of stuff. You have this huge, just sort of nebulous deep of waters chaotic and dark, and the Spirit of God is hovering over these waters. Now, the interesting thing is, as archaeologists and historians started to find other ancient writings about creation, they started to find that that's a very similar picture to what the other ancient peoples of that time, how they pictured sort of the universe, their concept of the universe, before the earth or anything else was made. I'll just read you the first lines of the Babylonian one, and we'll just have to leave it at that for now. But anyway, uh, Enuma Elish, Tablet 1. I don't normally like to read verses from false religions. But anyway, here's, a, here's an ancient one. This is not the Bible, okay? So you don't need to memorize this or anything. But anyway, verse 1. When the heavens above did not exist and earth beneath had not come into being, there was Apsu. That's the god of fresh water. Now, there are also many differences between these accounts, and we'll get to those differences in the last half of this message because actually when you see the differences, that's when Genesis 1 and 2 really come alive because you see what, what Moses was, was really trying to get at. But anyway, in these other creation accounts, these uh, other religions, they, the gods are personified with nature. So you've got the god of the ocean and the god of the Nile, in the case of some of the Egyptian ones, and the god of the sun and the different things. The point is, this is water, so Apsu is the god of fresh water. So, so this is, again, before the earth or anything is made, you've got this fresh water, the god of fresh water, Apsu, and, uh, and the first in order. So notice that water comes first, just like in Genesis 1. There begat her, and demiurge Tiamat, goddess of the sea, that's the salt water, who gave birth to them all. So I want you to notice again, the ancient Babylonians had this view too, and I'm going to show you a picture in, in just a little bit, um, uh, who gave birth to them all. They had mingled their waters together before meadowland, so that's earth and land and all that sort of stuff, had coalesced and reed bed was to be found, okay? So, so this is how... Uh, they, the Babylonians and the Egyptians were the same way. This is how they viewed things before creation started, is you sort of have this formless void of deep waters. And out of waters, 
creation is coming. Now, that's the first similarity, and we could go on and on. I'm just showing you a couple here. But as a result of the fact that the ancient peoples all viewed the universe as having started out of deep, deep water, uh, the creation stories from the different uh, nations in ancient times had to all have something similar. In order for the creation to happen, the waters had to be separated. Now, this, is, this happens in Genesis, right? Because you've got this big formless void of water, and in order for God to create land and the earth and the plants and all stuff, he's got he's to split the water. And so we actually see this in Genesis. Now, when we read Genesis, we generally tend to just read it, and we don't actually stop to imagine what we're reading. So I want us to take a couple minutes here this morning, and I want us to actually think about when, we, from now on, when you read Genesis, I want you to have in your mind a picture that the early Hebrew listeners would have had when Genesis was being read to them, or those who could read, uh, who, who could read would have read. So verse 6, let's go to, uh, to day 2, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. So it starts with this big kind of abyss of water, and now in order to create within this abyss of water, he's got to split them. So he says, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. In order for creation to happen, there's got to be a separation of these waters. Okay? This is what's happening in Genesis. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the uh, expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. So now, so now that he's, uh, the way you have to imagine this is you imagine a big, you know, this big deep of water. I was going to say ball of water, but again, and, and maybe we'll just go with that. You have to imagine that on day two, it's sort of like he blows an air bubble in there. And now within that air bubble, you've got waters above, waters below. Now in order to make the earth, he's going to split the waters below so that the land can pop through. Okay. So that's what's happening here on day three. And God said, let the waters under the heavens. So there's the waters above. There's the waters below. These are now getting split. Be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas and God saw that it was good. Okay. So again, many of us have read Genesis and heard Genesis many, many times. But many of us have not actually stopped to think what is actually being described here? We just sort of read over it and God created the earth and all this sort of stuff. We don't actually picture what the early Hebrews were picturing uh, when they were hearing this passage. Now, I want to actually show you an image before we get back and compare a little bit to Enuma Elish. I want to just show you a picture. And if, and if nothing else, uh, if you can get this picture, you know, a uh, picture's worth a thousand words. When you read the Old Testament with this picture in mind, it's actually going to start to come alive. Because I'm, what I'm showing you here is how the early Hebrews, the ancient Israelites, this is how they pictured the universe. And when they heard Genesis 1, this is what they saw happening. And again, this is really important for us to know because you know what's interesting to me? Uh, preachers are always talking about preaching the scriptures in context, right? Isn't that true? So whenever we preach in the New Testament, you know, we're talking about this is what Paul was saying in context. And this is what Jesus in the Gospels was saying in context. It's interesting to me as Christians that we always want to take the Scripture in context, except for in one place, Genesis 1 and 2. When we read Genesis 1 and 2, instead of going to it in its context, and what did the early people read, we tend to read it with modern eyes, with modern questions. But just like with the Gospels and with Paul's epistles, when we read Genesis 1 and 2, we need to see what was it saying to the first people who got it? Because that's the inspired word of God. So the early Hebrews, this was their picture of the universe, okay? And really the word universe is almost misleading because they didn't have a concept of the universe. But I'll get to that in just a moment. I want you to see here that you've got the great deep underneath. And by the way, when you read the Old Testament, and I'll show you a couple of, just a couple of examples, but I could show you dozens and dozens and dozens, that as you read through the Old Testament, this this picture of the universe. They didn't understand. They had no idea about galaxies or black holes or quasars or the force of gravity or that the earth revolves around the sun. None of that did these Hebrews have any idea about that we take for granted. And so when you read Genesis 1, you, you have to remember that whole universe understanding that we come at it with, we can almost, it's very hard for us even to take that understanding off and read it with different eyes. They didn't have that understanding. So they viewed the earth as literally floating on top of a great deep of water. The water's below. 
And then they saw the waters above, because remember, it got separated. So they saw the waters above. There was waters above, and then, in and then beneath that, you've got the earth, which you'll notice is flat. They had no concept of a spherical globe, okay, in ancient Israel. They had a flat earth that was floating on this great deep, and then you've got Sheol in there, and then you have a sun, which is not a huge, massive, balling, you know, burning ball of glass, balling, glass, <sighs> burning ball of gas, Wow, it's going to be a long morning this morning. Uh, they don't have a concept of that. The sun is, is, for many of the ancient peoples, was a small g god. For the Israelites, clearly not, and we'll get to that. But it's a small light, or, or smaller than the earth. Maybe not small, but it revolves around, you know, the earth somehow, and, and the moon was a light as well. This was their view. Now, again, you have to understand here, uh, you might be asking the question, first of all, well, uh, how did they think the water above was held up so that it didn't all fall down. Because again, they don't have concepts of gravity and things like that. Well, the interesting thing is the ancient people in Israelite times, so I'm giving you glasses now to read Genesis the way the early readers would have read it. They, they did not think of the sky as, as uh, you know, they thought of the sky as actually a solid dome. They actually thought the sky was a solid dome and that's how it held the waters up above. They had no concept that you could, that the sky is just the way light refracts through the atmosphere and that actually there's nothing there to stop you from getting into a, a rocket ship and blasting off and going to see other planets. That was beyond, they had no imagination of that even. It's not even a concept for them. And I'll show you this actually in the wording of the Hebrew. If we go back to uh, Genesis just for a moment, Genesis uh, verse, uh, chapter 1 verse 6 says, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. So remember, he's separating the expanse there. The word there for expanse is the Hebrew word rakia, and it literally means solid. It's like beaten metal or, or glass. It has this idea of a solid vault. And just so you know, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not exaggerating this. I screenshot it. I don't even know if I'm allowed to do this, but it's easier to ask uh, forgiveness and ask for permission, right? So anyway, this, I screenshotted from Strong's Concordance Online, okay? So I'm giving, I'm giving credit there, blueletterbible.org. It's free. It's a great website anyway. And uh, this is the Hebrew word, rakia, and you'll see what it means there. Extended surface, solid, expanse, firmament. If you go to B, firmament, a vault of heaven, supporting waters above, considered by Hebrews as solid and supporting waters above. This is how they viewed the waters to be held up, okay? And then God would be above those waters, Okay? So again, their view of the universe, vastly smaller than our view. They, their universe was basically just the earth and water around it and then the sun and the moon uh, in between them and the, this rakia, the solid dome, okay? Now, of course, for them, the earth felt vast enough already, but they had no concept like we do of millions of light years, of, of black holes and hundreds of billions of galaxies and huge stars. They have no concept of that, Okay? This is their concept of how things are. Now, when you begin to understand this, lots of things in the Old Testament begin to come alive. I'll just show you two quick examples. This is my point to stick here. But just a couple of examples because you're going to read this in Job and Psalms and the prophets and all over the place. But let's look at Psalm chapter 104 for just one quick example. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. Now, if we read the Old Testament with modern eyes, what does he lays the beam, beams of his chambers on the waters mean? Maybe God has a cottage on the lake, right? Like literally, he just kind of built it out onto the lake, right? Or maybe he's got an oceanside mansion or something, okay? No, no. When it says he lays the beams of his chambers on the waters, this makes perfect sense for David to say, with his picture of the universe, which is you've got the waters above resting on this, the sky, which is a solid dome, and God is above those waters even. He is vastly superior to the universe. He is above his creation. I mean, the, the verse still ministers to us powerfully. It's just as relevant today as it was yesterday, but you can see how it comes alive when you get their, their concept of what he's thinking. God has literally built the beams of his chambers on top of those waters because he is above ruling over all his creation, okay? And other passages like Psalm 148, 
uh, you know, with a modern conception and reading of the Bible, don't make much sense to us. Praise him, you highest heavens, and you waters above the heavens. So the heavens there are the sky, and then what? So we all get that, you know, praise him, you highest heavens, and then praise him, you waters above the heavens. What's that talking about? That's talking about the waters, this picture they had of the way the universe was. Now, the question is, so why would God explain things to them this way? And this is really important, first of all, for a proper discernment and understanding of the Bible and how we read it. It's also very important for our understanding of God. Why would God explain it to these ancient Israelites that way? And the answer is because he explains it to them. He meets them where they're at, and he explains it to them in a way they can understand. He explains it to them in a way that they can understand. God did not come and give us the Bible in today's day and age. He gave it to them, you know, over 3,000 years ago. Well, the Genesis part anyway. But he came and spoke to Moses and the Israelites and rescued them out of Egypt more than 3,000 years ago. If he had given us the Bible, like if we were writing the Bible today under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, no doubt it would be explained vastly differently. And it would include more of our understanding of how things are. But if he would have explained it to them in scientific terms according to how we understand it now, it would have been absolute gibberish to them. It would have gone right over their heads. Okay, it would have gone right over their heads. Now, just to be fair... If God tried to explain things to us today in terms of how they actually are, it would go over our heads. See, this is the thing. You don't have to have an up-to-date understanding of science to know God or the plan of salvation. Aren't you glad? See, we've learned a lot in the last 3,500 years about science. There's a pretty big gap between our understanding of the universe today and what Moses and the Israelites understood 3,500 years ago, there's a pretty big gap. But guess what? The gap between our understanding today and what's out there to know and what God knows is far bigger. We're actually closer to the Israelites. So if God wanted to put a whole bunch of scientific explanations in the Bible, how would he do that? Because anything he puts in, if he puts scientific explanations in the Bible today, that scientific exp explanation is out of date in 10 years, obsolete in 100, and if Jesus hasn't come back in 3,000, it's totally gibberish. So God has to speak in ways that go far beyond trying to give technical understandings because he has to speak to us and to them in a way that they can understand. So I want to introduce you to a theological term. Uh, it's very important. It's called divine accommodation. Divine accommodation means God communicates with us in ways we can understand. Don't you love God? When Jesus came to earth, did he dress in modern clothes, invent himself an air conditioner? Uh, I mean, did he, he could have been the greatest event, inventor who ever lived. He could have come and say, hey guys, if we do this, this, and this, we have gunpowder. Woohoo! And everybody's like, wow, fireworks, this is amazing. He could have invented the computer. He could have invented the first gas-powered car. He could have done all kinds of crazy stuff. Did he do that? This is divine accommodation. He comes to the first century, to first century Israel, so he dresses like a first century Israelite, and he talks like a first century Israelite, and he is a first century Israelite. And can you imagine Jesus at 10 years old sitting in his rabbi school there in, uh, in Nazareth, and the teacher is talking something about the, the earth, you know, the sun revolving around the earth, and, and little 10-year-old Jesus raises his hand and say, well, actually, technically, that's not how it works, and then launching into this explanation and blowing everybody's mind. <laughs> Did he do that? When he had to write on a test, you know, when they gave him a test, you know, does the earth revolve around the sun or does the sun revolve around the earth, does he go, oh, boy. <laughs> and does he write the wrong answer, and everybody goes, he lied. No, that's not lying. That's called divine accommodation. God speaks to us in ways we can understand. And he most certainly does that today. He continues to do it today. I'm so glad he does it for us today. And he most certainly had to do it in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Okay? And this is why, and this now gives us a very important reason why there are so many similarities between Genesis and these other creation accounts. 
The reason there are so many similarities is not because Genesis was, is just another myth and was copied from these other ones. The reason there are so many similarities is because they're written by people who are living at the same time. If the Bible was given to us today, and we would write the inspired words of God today, there would be lots of overlap with other things people are writing that are not the Bible. Isn't that true? Because we have a similar understanding and, and where, where there's overlap of knowledge and things that don't have to do specifically with God, there's going to be lots of overlap. And so, of course, there's many similarities between Egyptian creation accounts and Babylonian creation accounts and Mesopotamian and Sumerian and all these different things in Genesis 1 because the people are living at the same time. And when they look at the sky, they actually think it's a hard dome holding up the waters. And God doesn't go, oh, shoot, I can't talk to these people because I've got to disabuse them of so many scientific notions that they have wrong. He is so loving, he speaks to them within that. And I'm so glad he does because if he spoke any other way, none of us would be able to get anything. And so I'll just show you one more thing here from Enuma Elish, and I'll make a quick list of some of the similarities, but... Uh, Enuma Elish, Tablet 4, shows us the separation of waters in the Babylonian creation myth because, again, if it starts with this formless void of waters, they've got to get separated before you can have creation. In Enuma Elish, Tablet 4, it's, uh, it's uh, described this way. One half of her, the water, so there's the separation. One half of her, he set up and stretched out as the heavens. He stretched the skin and appointed a watch with the instruction not to let her waters escape. In other words, not to let the water uh, fall down. Okay. And again, like I said, you can see now why secular historians would look at some of these different accounts and say, look at their, their similarities here. There definitely are some similarities. There are some major differences, which we'll talk about in just a few minutes. But let me just give you a little list of some of the similarities between uh, Genesis and, and the Babylonian and some of these other creation accounts. Uh, same initial four conditions from Genesis 1-2 are in many of the other creation accounts. Deep water, darkness, formless and empty, wind, Spirit of God moving. Separation of waters needed before earth can be created. Now, here's some other ones, and we could go on and on. You can literally, whole books have been written about some of these things, and you could do lectures on them. But some other similarities are serpents trying to disrupt God's plan. That actually pops up in some of the other stories as well. You say, why would that be? Well, maybe there's a memory there of something that actually happened. Same with Noah's flood. Why do all these different religions, you know, pretty much all over the world, have stories of a massive flood. Maybe it's a memory. Maybe it's a memory of something that actually happened. Isn't that a, that, I mean, that's just a, that, that actually makes sense. Okay? Okay, but anyway, creation of sun, moon, and stars to keep track of seasons, and humans formed out of dirt. You know, what's very interesting is one of the most common pictures, uh, or maybe I shouldn't say it that way, a common picture uh, throughout Egyptian hieroglyphics is the following picture. And uh, what you'll see there, the god on the right, there is a god named Kunum, and he's working a potter's wheel, and on top of the potter's wheel is a human being made out of clay. He's, he, the god Kunum was pictured as a potter working clay, and this was how the Egyptian creation story pictured the first humans being created, was that the god Kunum was a potter creating humans out of clay. Now, by the way, doesn't that ring familiar with some stuff we read in the Old Testament about God being a potter and us the clay? And also, there's some similarities there with Genesis chapter 2 and the way Adam is created. I'm going to go there right away. Then the Lord God, because also in the Egyptian accounts, there's this idea of the gods breathing life by breath into the clay, and then the clay comes alive. But look what happens in Genesis 2 verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust, or of dust, from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So again, you can see how scholars... Secular scholars and historians would look at this and say, okay, there's a ton of similarities here. This is just another myth. And you'd see why our, why our culture and universities would grab onto this idea, why would you believe in the Bible? It's, there's all kinds of myths out there, ancient myths. And the Bible probably copied from some of them. That's what they say. So therefore, why would you believe that? Why not just believe the Babylonian one? Or why not believe the Egyptian one? Uh, and there's almost this idea in our culture, like now, because of all of our technological understanding, we've, that's sort of primitive to believe in a creation like that. That's sort of primitive to believe in God. And we've sort of moved beyond that. Okay? And so what do we say about that? Well, first of all, I'm going to come back to Genesis and the myth thing. But I first want to hit this idea, this sort of snobbish idea in many of our universities and in parts of our culture, 
that, that's sort of primitive. Those, those stories from 3,000 years ago are primitive, and they're ancient, and we've kind of moved past that because of science. Here's the actual truth. The more we learn about science, the more evidence we find for a designer. In fact, we know a lot more now about science than Moses did when he wrote the book of Genesis, and we have thousands more reasons to believe in God now than Moses did when he, when he wrote Genesis 1 and 2. And I have to, I have to do this. I, I, I've done some astronomy. I'm going to do something a little different now, but I have to geek out here for just a little bit about the human body, okay? So just bear with me, okay? But I have to geek out just a little bit, okay? Let's talk about the human. Do you realize how the precise engineering that goes into your body, it's almost unimaginable. And we could look at a thousand different things within the human body, but let's just talk about blood vessels for just a little bit, okay? Blood vessels. Do you know that if you took a small child and took all their blood vessels out, now that would be a terrible thing to do, but just to measure them. <laughs> but you take the average child and you, you take out all their blood vessels. You take out their arteries and their veins and their, now don't take them out, but you just somehow measure them, okay? So you take a trip to the vessels. Anyway, blood ve veins, arteries, and capillaries, and you stretch them out end to end, just from one kid. Do you, do you realize that all those blood vessels stretch 60,000 miles? That's two, that's two and a half times around Earth from one kid. If you take them out of an adult, depending on how big you are, it's going to be close to 100,000 miles, okay? that you could go around at the equator, you would be on a plane trying to fly around the world and it would be taking you hours and hours and hours and hours and that would just be one, and days and that would be just one person's blood vessel. Some of those blood vessels are so small, five microns thick, they're a third of the width of a human hair and yet they will last for more than 80 years. They're incredibly flexible. They fix themselves. They go under unbelievable changes of pressure as your heart pumps and then let's go, and pumps, and let's go, and they'll last over 80 years. There isn't anything man-made that even comes close, okay? But I don't even want to just talk about blood vessels. Your heart is pumping blood through that massive system three times every minute, every hour, every day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, and if it ever stops, you go kaputz, right? Do you realize how far, if you could shrink yourself down, put yourself in a little life raft, and sit on a red blood cell, you would travel for one day, for 24 hours, you would travel 12,000 miles every single day. Do you know how far 12,000 miles is? That's across Canada, and we live in a big country, more than three times. And your blood makes that trip every single day of your life until you die, because it can't stop. Your heart is actually working so hard that even when you're at rest, it is squeezing so hard that it is working harder than your leg muscles do even when you are sprinting. And here's just a cutaway of the heart-lung system. And I want you to see how well put together that thing is. Can any, is it even possible to imagine that this thing was put together by random chance, by accident? That this thing came into being just out of nothing? Is that possible? Your heart beats 100,000 times every day. And it just keeps going and going. That's unbelievable. But you know what? I'm not even blown away so much even just by the heart and the blood. I'll tell you where I really wanted to get. And I won't spend way too much time here. I, I could, but I, I won't. I just, the thing that really gets me is where does the, all the information come to build this system? Where does all the information come from to build this system, okay? You need, a, you need a, a blueprint to build a house. Isn't that true? Those of you who are in construction, in order to build a house, you know, you've got to have a blueprint. Now, I don't know. I'm, I'm not a construction guy, so I don't know. I'm assuming blueprints are a few pages. I'm, I've seen some in my life. I just can't remember how long they are. But, you know, maybe they're a few pages long or a dozen pages. I don't know, Okay. But when you look at those blueprints, do you think to yourself, I think someone's house cat had a marker in their hand and just randomly scribbled on the page, and here I have a working blueprint. I'm serious. Do you think that? You don't think that. You know, this is the product of purposeful intelligence. Engineers and draftspeople and designers had to carefully think through and plan a design meticulously measured and carried out so that if I follow this plan, I'm going to end up at the end with a functioning house, okay? Now, here's the thing. The instructions for your body are far, 
far more complex than can even be imagined by a blueprint for a house. Your DNA, the instructions for your body are carried on, on uh, molecular strands called DNA. And your DNA is three billion letters long. If they typed out all the information in that DNA, it would, it would fill up 200,000 pages, okay? 200,000 pages. Now, I know that you don't know how much 200,000 pages is. I mean, you're just thinking to yourself, I've never read a book that big, so it's pretty thick. Okay, so how big is 200,000 pages of information that it took to build your body? Okay, well, if you stacked up 200,000 pages, okay, and if you go on Google, you can check up all my stats, okay? Uh, one page is about four one-thousandths of an inch thick. So if you stack up 200,000 of those, they will stack up to about 67 feet high. That's a little bit higher than a six-story building. So I want you to imagine that you go to Fernwood or some other building like that here in town, and you pile up pages, eight and a half by 11 pages, to the very top of the roof. That's how much information, double-sided, it took to build you. Okay? Now, some of you are still not blown away because you haven't thought of the next question. Because you're like, wow, that's a lot of information. That's a lot of information. But have you ever thought... How is that information inside of you? I don't see 60 feet, I don't see a 60 foot bulge. I mean, I just about disappear when I turn sideways. Right? I mean, I don't see a 60 foot bulge in any of you. How is 200,000 pages of information stored inside of you that you got built? Well, it's stored in this molecule called DNA. But here's the really mind blowing thing. There isn't just one DNA inside of you. There is a DNA strand of 200,000 pages of information in every cell of your body, which, I might add, the latest estimates say that there are about 37 trillion cells in your body. I really feel for the guys who have been counting like crazy for the last 25 years to figure that out. But I want you to think about that. 200,000 pages of information. It's not just 200,000 pages of information in your body. It's 200,000 pages of information in every cell of your body. So times 37 trillion. You are one walking massive information data bank. How does that all fit in your body? Well, DNA is one of the most amazing things ever. Every DNA in those 37 trillion cells of yours, if you took it out of that cell, that cell which is so microscopic it takes a high-tech, expensive microscope just to see it, in every one of those tiny microscopic cells, that DNA strand is actually six feet long. And almost invisibly, it's almost infinitely thin. It's like two nanometers thick. It's like it would, totally invisible, but it's six feet long, and, and, but, but totally invisible. You wouldn't be able to see it. And then here's the crazy thing. It's actually folded into your cell, okay? But it's not just crammed together and stuffed in there. It wouldn't fit if you just crammed it, okay? It's actually folded according to an incredibly advanced mathematical and geometric, in a, in a, you know, geometric way. And you can look up there some of that. You won't even get it, but it's crazy, okay? But it's actually folded, again, according to a, an advanced geometrical pattern called a fractal globule. You don't need to remember that. But it is folded up in such a way that all six feet of it get folded into that tiny cell, of which there's 37 trillion in your body, in such a way that it never tangles and it never knots. Now, we should be almost weeping with wonder at that, because how many of you have ever just stuck your headphones in your pocket for five seconds, and when you pull it out, it's like, what? And if that DNA would knot on you once or kink on you once, you're done. Not only is it folded up so that it fits and so that no point crosses another point more than once, but it's also folded in such a way into that tiny cell that the cell can read it. 200,000 pages of information can be read in half an hour in some of the cells to an hour so that that cell can perfectly reproduce itself with almost no mistakes. And that whole system of... of of error detection is absolutely incredible, more than anything we have human-made. But it can read it and reproduce it in half an hour to an hour to an hour and a half, depending on the kind of cell. Okay? It is absolutely mind-blowing. It's so incredible, the technology 
of data storage that is in your body is so incredible now that scientists all over the world at places like Harvard and other places around the world are spending millions of dollars trying to figure out how to store data that way because it's trillions. We're not talking millions or billions or thousands. It is trillions of times more effective and efficient than the best computer hard drives we have on Earth today. In fact, and I'm going I'm, I'm, I'm to finish with this, but I just have to give, this is the ultimate mind blow, so just hold on to your seats. <laughs> DNA is so effective at storing information that the latest estimates are this. Scientists now estimate that if you had a teaspoon of DNA, that's four grams of DNA, okay? That's not very much. You all know what a teaspoon is. If you had a teaspoon of DNA, it is so effective at storing information, they think that in a teaspoon of DNA, you could actually store all of the data in the entire world. All of the useless text messages and WhatsApp chat messages you've ever sent. Every song that's ever been written, every book, every nuclear code, every blueprint, everything ever developed by humanity that is digitalized or online could be stored, they think, in about four grams. And I can send you the article, any of you who wants to see it, in about four grams of DNA. And they're desperately trying to figure out how they can copy it for human-made technology. And you want to tell me this is all an accident or that when Genesis says God created the earth, this is a myth? We, Moses didn't even have any idea about this. We have thousands more reasons to believe in God. DNA, actually the code in the, the, the letters in DNA, actually, do you know they now, they actually now, now know that uh, your DNA actually meets the rigorous definition of the scientific rigorous definition of what a code is. Literally, it's like a computer program, okay? And there's actually, there are actually people out there right now, they're offering a $10 million prize for anyone who can find an example of a naturally occurring, that means without someone writing it, of a naturally occurring code in nature and nobody can collect on the prize. You know why? Because it takes intelligence to write a code. You actually have a letter from God written in all 37 trillion of your cells. And you think, people think this is an accident or that this came together randomly? Absolutely false. So when someone says to you, whoa, whoa, you know, Genesis 1 is just a myth. The Bible is just a myth because of... of of, you know, we don't have to believe in that in science. No, no, actually, the more scientific you are, the more reasons you have to believe it. Genesis 1 isn't a myth, it's just old. That doesn't make it less true, it's just old. It was spoken to people 3,500 years ago. If it was written today, no doubt it would include things about DNA and, the, and you know, the, the fine-tuning of gravity and the physical constants of the universe. But it wasn't given to us today, it was given to Moses. And science confirms what it says, and that is that God created the heavens and the earth. So you say, well, what does all this have to do with Genesis 1 and 2? Well, like I just said, just to repeat myself, if Moses was writing today, no doubt it would look a lot different. And it might include some of these things that we now understand. But he wasn't writing today. And he wasn't writing about evolution or Darwinism or modern science because he had no idea about those things. He was writing uh, about the things of his day, what he wanted his people to know and what he wanted his people to reject. And in his day, he's writing that they need to reject the Egyptian creation story. See, it's all about context. So what is the context of Genesis 1 and 2? Let me explain it to you. The Israelites have been in Egypt for generations, exposed to the Egyptian religion and creation stories and all of that. They've been there for generations. They have no Bible. Think this is before the Bible. That's why Moses is writing Genesis now. Okay, they have some stories passed on to them from their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but we don't even know how well those were passed along. They're in Egypt, and then Moses comes to them, and this God calling himself Yahweh rescues them out of Egypt with tremendous signs and wonders and miracles and plagues and brings them out into the wilderness. And now Moses is going to write the first five books of the Bible. Why? So that they can know this God who has rescued them and obey him. That's why he's writing. So Genesis chapter 1 is the first part of the introduction. Who is God? And the first thing God wants them to know is this God is the creator of all that exists. 
Meet Yahweh. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Meet Yahweh, the one who has rescued you out of Egypt. Second of all, Moses wants them to know there is only one God. This God, Yahweh, who rescued you out of Egypt, is not part of uh, you know, a pantheon of many different little gods who fight and stuff. See, the Babylonian and Egyptian creation stories are filled with all these deities fighting and sordid sexual stories and, and, and just all this stuff. And Genesis 1 and 2 sets out very clearly, Yahweh who rescued you is the God who created all that exists, and he is only one. There is only one creator of everything. There isn't this pantheon of gods. And thirdly, and we could look at many, many things. I'm just going to show you four to end this message. But thirdly, this God, Yahweh, is separate from his creation. It's very important when you see, it's interesting the things that are listed in Genesis 1 that are things that are made, not God. See, in the Egyptian and Babylonian, some of the other creation stories of that time, the sun is a god, and the Nile River in Egypt was a god, and the ocean is a god, and all these gods are personified in nature. That's why if you went on a ship and you were going to go out on the ocean, you would offer sacrifices to the ocean god because you literally saw the ocean as a living thing that if it got mad at you and you didn't offer the right sacrifice, would capsize you and kill you. But Genesis 1 sets out that Yahweh, the God who rescued you, is separate from his creation. And all of these things, the water and the land and the plants and the animals and the stars, are just created things. They're not beings. They're not gods. That is very important to, the, to Genesis 1 and 2. In fact, something very interesting, and I, I could just go on and on, but Genesis 1 and 2, when you understand this introduction, you put it in its context that these people have just come out of Egypt, it comes alive. So, for example, it's very interesting that in verse 16, it's almost like Moses goes out of his way not to say the words sun or moon. Everything else he says. But in Genesis 1.16, when he's talking clearly about the sun and the moon, he doesn't say sun and moon. I mean, he says plants and animals and everything's land. But when it comes to sun and the moon, he says, and God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. Why does he do that? A lot of scholars believe this has to do because the penchant of people in that day, including the Israelites, think of, I mean, when you think about the context, now think of how the first five books of, 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 of the Old Testament make sense. The whole time, God keeps reminding them, don't worship all these other gods. And we always think of it like, why, are they, why do they want to worship all these other gods? It's because that's all they've really known. They just keep going back to their old habits. And every, you know, pretty much everybody in the world in those days thought the sun was a god. It's not a burning ball of gas. It's, it's a being. And he's got heat and light. He's very powerful. You don't want to make him mad. So in Egypt, they called him Ra, and they worshipped him. And the moon was another god, and you worshipped him. So a lot of scholars now think the reason Moses doesn't even give them names is because the moment you put a noun to it, it can look like a name. And Moses wanted to make sure that in the coming generations, they never mistook that these are not beings that are alive. And so it's like Moses says, Yahweh, oh yeah, when it gets the sun and the moon, they're just two lights. They're just lights. Okay, there's the greater one, and there's the lesser one for the night. But don't confuse these with persons you worship. They're just created things. Yahweh is God. And lastly, and this is where I'm going to leave off for next week, because next week we'll dive into this more, but I'll just introduce it here. There's much, so much more. All of Genesis is pregnant with theological truth. And it's just so important that we not take our modern context and try to find all kinds of stuff that Moses isn't thinking about. But for a proper theology of human beings also comes out very strongly in Genesis 1 and 2. First of all, human beings are given dominion over the earth, not the gods. See, in a lot of the other creation stories... The gods are the ones who get dominion over the earth. And uh, second thing in Genesis 1 and 2 is that human beings are precious. We're actually made in God's image. We take that for granted now, but in ancient times, in the other creation stories of the other nations, uh, a lot of them portray uh, people as being slaves of the gods. In fact, work was considered in, in uh, some of the creation myths of that time Work was considered this thing that the gods didn't want to do, so they made humans as slaves so they wouldn't have to do the hard labor. 
Can you see what a different picture of work and humanity between the Bible and these other things? This is what Moses is writing about. And in the Bible, it's very clear in Genesis 1 and 2, work is not a bad thing because you're a slave. Work is actually part of having dignity as a person who's made in the image of God. We don't do work because God doesn't want to. We do work because our God is a working God. And part of being in his image is that we live productive, hardworking lives. Totally different than the worldview of the others. There's massive differences there. And Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is giving these to the people of Israel so that they can follow the one true God. All right. I want you just to bow your heads with me and close your eyes. And let's just take a breath. Take a moment to consider this God who is so real. He is so real. He has actually written a code. It's every bit as much a code as any software program that's in the world today. And he has folded it up with the instructions for making you into each of your 37 trillion cells. There's no doubt that this universe is not an accident. There is a super powerful, unbelievably intelligent, infinitely intelligent engineer out there who has designed you and he knows you. And he knows each of the days of your life and he knows each of the intricacies of your personality and your, and your body because he designed it and he wrote it out. And so, Lord Jesus, we just, we come to you and we worship you. You are real. I pray that as a church, in love and confidence, we would not be intimidated by some of the lies and attacks that are out there that say that your word is a myth and that it's not true. Father, we have more reasons than ever to believe in you. And you are listening to this prayer right now. Give us confidence to engage with our culture and to hold our heads high and to be a light for your son, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.